Well, welcome to Two Cities. My name is Spencer. I am one of the pastors here. And whether you are joining us from the lobby or online or in this room, we are glad you are here. The last few weeks, we have been in a series called Make Room, which is a series on the spiritual disciplines. And two weeks ago, we heard from Pastor Stephen as he taught us about fasting. And what he said was that fasting is making room for communion with God. And then last week, we heard from Pastor Kyle as he taught us about rest and Sabbath. And the big idea of his message was that we need to make room for rest in a busy world. Well, today we're going to be talking about the question of what does it look like to make room in a shallow world? And so we're going to be talking about the spiritual discipline of Bible intake. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab those and flip to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19, that's where we're going to be today. As you turn there, I want to ask you this question. What does Bible intake look like in your life right now? What does it look like? For some of you, it might be you read your Bible every day and you're happy to. For some of you, it might be you read your Bible once or, once or twice a week. It's, it's inconsistent and you wish that it would be more often. And then for some of you, you might not be reading the Bible at all. Well, what I want to be clear about as we get started here is there is no spiritual discipline more important than Bible intake. There is no substitute for it. There is no such thing as a healthy Christian life apart from regular Bible intake. And as we head into 2022, I am sure that each of you would love for next year to be marked by you becoming more disciplined. And so whether it's your financial health or your spiritual health or your emotional health or your physical health, there are really just one of two options. There's discipline or there's disaster. Those are the two options. A complete lack of of discipline financially will lead to unnecessary debt and being unable to provide for your family. A complete lack of discipline with your physical health will eventually lead to you not having very much energy. It'll lead to unnecessary health problems and it'll lead to you being a burden on others. Well, a lack of discipline spiritually will lead to you feeling disconnected from God and it will lead to you being uniquely vulnerable to temptation. You see, a common misconception that people have is they think that discipline and freedom are separate. They'll say, well, if, if I want to have freedom, then I can't be distant. But what we have to understand is that discipline and freedom are very closely connected. That freedom is the reward of discipline. If, if you have disciplined yourself to read the Bible regularly and to memorize scripture, then you are going to have the freedom to quote the scripture when you talk to people. If you have disciplined yourself to study the word consistently, then you are going to have the freedom to explain it to other people. Jen Wilkin, who is a Bible teacher from Texas, she says that the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. And so in order for us to love the Bible, to teach the Bible, to memorize the Bible, we have to be reading the Bible regularly. And so to talk about Bible intake, we are going to be in Psalm chapter 19. So C.S. Lewis, who many of you know, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He said that there that Psalm 19 is the greatest poem in the Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Psalm 19, it gives us the most clear, concise picture of the truthfulness and the importance of Scripture that we have in the entire Bible. And so King David, he wrote this Psalm, and there's one overarching theme that we have here. The big overarching theme of this Psalm is that God has revealed himself to us. God has revealed himself to us. God, what God has done is he has forfeited his personal privacy in order to allow for us to know him. 
And so as we go through this psalm, King David is going to give three different invitations. The first invitation he's going to say, he's going to say, look up. He's going to say, look up at God's creation. Look up at, at the world. Secondly, he's going to say, look down. Look down at the scriptures. And then lastly, he's going to say, look inward, which is examine yourself. And so let's look together at Psalm 19, starting in verse 1. King David's going to start by saying, look up. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So what King David does, is he starts this psalm by explaining how God reveals his glory through his world. God reveals his glory through his world. Well, what is the glory of God? That's a helpful question to ask. The glory of God is when any of God's attributes go public. And so what we see in verse 1 and verse 2 is that the heavens, the sky, and the sun, they are constantly declaring the glory of God. The design is telling us something about the attributes of the designer. So I took APR history in high school, and I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Um, and I don't remember anything about it hardly at all anymore since it's been over 10 years. But the one thing I do remember is that basic, basic art interpretation 101 is that in order for you to understand the art, you have to understand the artist. And so a couple years ago, I was touring the Vatican, and my wife and I went on a tour guide of the Sistine Chapel in St. Peter's Basilica, and it was like a three-hour-long tour, and the tour guide was, um, he just talked nonstop. He was just a really nice guy. He just talked nonstop for like three hours, and he would tell us all these little fun facts about the artists of, of the paintings. And so we would be, we'd be looking at a painting by Michelangelo, and, and, the, and the tour guide would just be like, yeah, so, so at the time that Michelangelo painted this painting, he was actually having a big conflict with one of the officials in the church. And so if you look down in the corner of this painting, you can see that Michelangelo painted the face of this official on this naked body here, and he gave it in donkey ears. And so, and so the tour guide was just giving all these interesting, fun facts. And so in order to explain the art, the tour guide was telling us about the artist. And King David, what he says in Psalm 19, is he says, there is an artist, there is a creator, and the creation is telling us something about his greatness. You see, culture or college professors, they might tell you that creation is an accident and there is no creator. Stephen Hawking, who is a well-known scientist who passed away a couple years ago, he said this in the last book of his life. He said, I think the universe was spontaneously created out of nothing. But then in the very same book, he goes on and he says this. He says, we have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe. And so Stephen Hawking, he speaks of an amazing design, but he makes no mention of a designer. And what King David is saying here is that by looking up at God's creation, by looking up at God's design, all of us are able to see that there is a God and that he is powerful. The first six verses of this psalm lead us to a topic that theologians call the general revelation of God. So let's all put our theology thinking caps on here for just a second. So there is the general revelation of God, and then there's the specific revelation of God. So the general revelation of God is God's revelation of himself to all people in all places at all times. This comes through the creation. This comes through the Christian conscience. This comes through just a general knowledge that God exists. So every person in the history of the world 
has been given God's general revelation. Now, this is different from specific revelation. So God's specific revelation is God's revelation of himself in the person of Christ and in the word. And this is not given to everyone. And what, this is a very complex topic, and I don't have time to get into it deeply. There's been books and books and books written about this. But the big idea that we have to understand is that no one is saved through general revelation. So you, you cannot be saved through general revelation. And you may say, well, I feel like I connect with God through nature. Well, that might be true to some extent, but that is not enough. Salvation requires specific revelation. And in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul basically says that God has revealed general truths about himself to everyone, but that all men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And so what Paul is saying is that even though some people never receive specific revelation, they are without excuse when it comes to knowing God because they have even rejected God's general revelation. And so King David starts by saying that God reveals his glory through his world. He says, look up. And then the second big idea that we're going to get to is that God reveals his grace through his word. And so you can look at creation and you can see God's glory. But you can't look at creation and, and learn anything about God's love or about God's forgiveness or about God's judgment. Those things have to come down through the re revealed word of God. And so in the same way that a tour guide at a museum can give you specific information about an artist, the word of God can give you specific information about God himself. By the way, if you've been to one of our weekenders, you've heard us talk at length about the Bible. You've heard us say things like the Bible is from God, it is about Jesus, it is for us. You've heard us say things like the Bible is inerrant. You've heard us say things like the Bible is all that we need for faith and practice. And you've heard us say that if the Bible confronts me, I have two options. I can try to change the Bible or I can change my mind. These positions come straight from the text. So look with me here at verse 7. Verse 7 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect. So David is referring here to the Mosaic law, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The, pre the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So these verses here are a great, incredible summary of the word of God. And these verses really, I mean, you can see here when you read this, that King David clearly loves the word of God. It's almost like he's writing a love letter to God. It almost makes it feel a little bit uncomfortable at the, the language he's using. But some of you, I know, don't view the Bible this way. Some of you view the Bible the opposite of this. You, you view the Bible as confusing. You view the Bible as complicated. You don't want to read it. You don't think that it's very beneficial. But this text gives us multiple reasons for why we should want to read the Bible. There are multiple benefits that are clearly listed in this text. I'll just list them. This is straight from the text. It says, Scripture revives the soul, makes wise the simple, rejoices the heart, enlightens the eyes, endures forever, and produces righteousness. Now, the reason that the Bible leads to these benefits is because the Bible is perfect and because the Bible is true. And so look back with me at verse 7. Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect. Verse 9 says, the rules of the Lord are true. So I want to talk for just a couple moments about the truthfulness or the inerrancy of Scripture. 
So whenever we say that the Bible is inerrant, basically what we mean is that whatever the Bible affirms corresponds to reality. That's what it means. You see, the culture, though, the culture doesn't like the idea of objective truths. The culture likes the idea of half-truths. The culture values compromise. People in the culture will say something like, well, I'm just living my truth. Well, you see, since the scriptures are perfect and since they are entirely truthful, this means that there is no such thing as my truth. There is only the truth. And a helpful question to ask as you're reading the Bible is what would this passage mean if I didn't exist? Because when you ask that question, you take yourself and your experiences out of it. And that will give you a good idea as to what that passage actually means. And so the culture will also say things like the Bible contradicts itself. You'll hear that pretty often. And every once in a while, I'll be talking to a college student, and, and they'll mention this to me. That they'll, say, they'll say, what do we make of the passages of Scripture that contradict? And first of all, whenever they ask that, I appreciate it because that means that they're at least doing their best to be intellectually honest. And, and so when they ask the question, I'll say, well, can you give me an example? And sometimes they can't. They're just, they're just regurgitating what they were told by a professor. But, but then if they, if they do give an example, it's almost always something that can be explained by pointing out that what seems to be a contradiction is really just two different perspectives of the same event. And so, for example, in the Gospels, there are four different accounts of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And in one of the accounts, the author gives more of just a general summary, just a general overview. Whereas in another account, the author gives lots of more specific details of the actual event. You see, we have to view these accounts as complementary to each other. Like, they're not in contradiction. They are complementary. And so a helpful, thing to, to, or a helpful way to think about the Bible is that when the Bible says two things that seem to contradict, you believe them both. That's the approach. I've also heard people say before that, that um, people don't reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, because it doesn't. People reject the Bible because it contradicts them, which there's so much truth in that quote. So we believe here that the scriptures are perfect and they are entirely truthful. We also have to be convinced that submitting to the scriptures is always what is in our best interests. So look with me at verse eight. Verse eight says this, the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So precepts are doctrines. So these precepts and doctrines, these are absolute truths. These are not suggestions about what might work. And so to be perfectly clear here, here at Two Cities Church, we do not, and by God's grace, never will, twist the scriptures in order to try to make them say what we want them to say. That is not what we are about here. We do not ignore passages of scripture that might make us a little bit uncomfortable to cover. What we do is we come to the scriptures humbly. We position ourselves underneath the scriptures in a posture of submission. Because the commandments of the scriptures are truths that need to be submitted to, not suggestions that need to be considered. Let me say that again. The commandments in the scriptures are truths that must be submitted to, not suggestions to be considered. Well, why is this? Well, we see in verse 11. Verse 11 says this. Moreover, by them, so by the scriptures, by the commandments, is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. So you may read this verse and you may say, well, if I keep God's commandments, am I going to earn his full approval? Is that the great reward? And the answer to that is, is no. Is that you cannot keep, the God, keep God's commandments well enough to earn his full approval. 
Salvation is not something that you earn by being a good person. Salvation is not something that you earn by attending church regularly or going to community group or growing up in a Christian home or giving generously. Salvation is something that is given as a gift to those who repent of their sins and place faith in Jesus Christ, who actually was able to perfectly keep God's commandments. And so in verse 11, the great reward that you will get is that you will be living in a way that is consistent with how God wants you to live. I feel like I say this to college students twice a semester. And I just, I just keep saying this because I think it's so important. And I want all of you to hear this. But if you were a student in here, I especially want you to hear this. And that is that every single command from God in the Bible is about God inviting you into the fullest life possible. Every single command from God in the Bible is about him warning you, like we see in verse 11, of the past that he does not want you to go down. And so when God says, hey, this is how sex works, or this is why drunkenness is a sin, it is not that he just doesn't want you to have any fun. What he's doing is he's warning you by saying that if you reject my commandments, it's going to lead to brokenness, it's going to lead to pain, and it's going to lead to regret. But like King David says here, in keeping his commandments, there is great reward. There is life. Now, some of you might hear me and think, well, I would love to read the Bible more regularly, but I don't really know where to start. Well, reading the Bible consistently and in a way that is fruitful is a skill that has to be learned. In 1 Peter 2, he talks about how in the same way that newborn infants long for milk, spiritually reborn people have to learn how to eat spiritual food. And so my wife and Olivia, my wife Olivia and I, we have a six-month-old at home. She's actually home right now. And um, for the last six months, up until this week, our daughter Emma has eaten nothing but milk. Her diet is milk, milk, and milk, and some vitamin D drops once a day. And this week, we started to give her some more solid food, and so we've let her have some yogurt, and we've let her have some, some like, mashed-up bananas. And so far, it has just not worked out very well. <laughs> I mean, she's, she's gagging. I mean, after we feed her, I'm just like, I feel like there's more food in her bib than, than that she actually ate. It's just, it's just been a mess. And so, but, but eventually, over the next few weeks, over the next few months, she is going to have to figure out how to eat real food because she can't live on nothing but milk forever. And in the same way, we have to be a church that is full of self-feeders. We have to be a church full of people who learn how to read the Bible, study the Bible, memorize the Bible, and teach it to others. And so I want to give us six practical tips for Bible reading. So six practical tips for Bible reading. You can write these down. Number one, number one is begin with prayer. This is a very simple idea. So as you read your Bible, you should begin with prayer. And there's three main things that you can pray for. You can first pray that God would give you the desire to read the Bible regularly. But then in addition to that, as you read, you can pray that he would give you understanding and that you would retain what you read. And so start with prayer, pray that he would give you the desire, pray that he would give you understanding, and pray that he would allow you to retain what you read. The second is Bible before phone. Bible before phone. So this habit, what it's designed to do is this habit is designed to get you to read the Bible daily. How many of us, when we wake up, the first thing we do is we roll over, we grab our cell phones, and we just start scrolling? Probably a lot of us, probably at least half of us do this. Well, a helpful principle when you're trying to start any habit is to connect what you need to do 
with what you know that you want to do. And so if you naturally want to grab your phone and start scrolling, that's fine. But let what you want to do be the reward for what you know that you need to do, which is to read the Bible. And so the sequence of events is this. You wake up, Bible before phone. This is what you know that you need to do. And then the third part, after you have read your Bible, after you have done what you need to do, you reward yourself by allowing you to do what you know, what you, by allowing you to do what you want to do, which is just grab your phone. And so Bible before phone is number two. Number three is make the time. Make the time is number three. So some of you may say, if you were to look at my schedule, Spencer, you would know that I don't have the time to read. Well, the reality is that all of us we make time for what is most important to us. And so if I were to come to you and say, hey, I will give you $1 million if you read the Bible for five minutes a day, every day in 2022, would you do it? Y- yes, you, you of course would do it because it would be important for you. You would make the time. And I think that King David actually speaks to this exact idea in verse 10 when he says, more to be desired are they, are the scriptures, than gold, even much fine gold. And so he's saying that the word of God is more valuable even than tons of money. And so I would say, make the time and then start somewhere. Start with five minutes per day if you need to, and then slowly try to build from there. John Piper, who is a well-known pastor, I love what he says about making time. He, he says this. He says that if you have to choose between breakfast and Bible, choose Bible, and then grab an energy bar, and then plan better, is what he says. And so this is how we need to approach this. We need to make the time. So number four, number four is make the Bible obvious and visible. Make the Bible obvious and visible. So something that's very easy for you to do is to leave the Bible in places that are very visible to you where you're going to see it. Because if you're trying to to develop a new habit, what you need is you need to give yourself cues in your environment that lead to your desired behavior. Another thing that could be helpful is to leave your Bible open. So leave it open on your desk or leave it open on your bedside table. It's been said that a closed Bible is way too easy to ignore. And so make the Bible obvious and visible. Number five, pick a Bible reading plan. So there are lots of ways to read through the Bible. There are more ways than just starting in Genesis and going to Revelation. But I know this from experience and from talking with people that here's what often happens. People make a New Year's resolution and they say, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And so they start in Genesis, they go from Genesis to Exodus, and they're smooth sailing. And then they get to Leviticus, and they they lose a little bit of steam. And then March rolls around, and you're in Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you're a little bit less motivated, and and you're busy for a week or two, and you get a cold, and then before you know it, you just stop reading altogether. That's what normally tends to happen. Well, what we have to understand is there are more ways to read through the Bible than just going from Genesis to Revelation. There are a lot of great Bible reading plans out there. You can print out a plan that is a New Testament plan through a year, which is basically just like one chapter of the New Testament per day. You can find it online. You can pick a plan where you read two chapters of the Old Testament per day and one chapter of the New Testament per day. Or what you could do is you could just say, hey, this month, I'm going to read through the book of Romans as many times as I can. And the next month, I'm going to read through the book of John as many times as I can so that you will hopefully be able to retain what you read. Also, with a Bible reading plan, I would encourage you to print it out. 
because the first time that I read through the Bible, I was in college, and what I did is I printed off a piece of paper with every, every book of the Bible, and then also every single chapter of the Bible with a little box. And so as I read, I just, I just started checking the boxes. And slowly, over the course of about two years, I finally made it through the entire Bible. And so should reading the Bible be you just checking something off the list? No. But can a checklist be helpful to you? Yes, of course. And another helpful thing is parents. So a way that you can serve your kids is by making sure they have an age-appropriate Bible, which, of course, is going to be changing over time. And you may say, well, what's the best plan to pick? What's the best Bible reading plan? I would say, whichever plan you're most likely to read. And, and you might say, well, which version of the Bible should I read? Whichever version you're most likely to read. We, we read and we preach out of the ESV version here, but there are multiple good versions to read. And so one of the things we have to do is we have to pick a plan. And again, one of the main goals of Bible reading is to retain what you read. The point is not for you to get through the Bible, but for the Bible to get through to you. And so a few helpful questions to ask as you read. My two favorite questions are very simple. What does this passage say about God? And then what does this passage say about man? Very helpful questions. And then as you try to apply it, you can just ask, how can I apply this? Or you can ask yourself, is there a command here that I see in the scriptures that I need to obey? So pick a Bible reading plan. And then lastly, number six, find an accountability partner. Find an accountability partner. It is so helpful to read the Bible with someone else. The Bible is meant to be read and interpreted in community. I've been trying to journal more over the last few months, and journaling does not come very naturally to me. And so when I started journaling, I, I told Pastor Caleb, I said, hey, I, I want to start doing SOAP journaling more. So SOAP stands for Scripture, Observation, Application, Prayer. And so I said, hey, I, I want you to hold me accountable to, to SOAP journaling. And so what ended up happening is about once a week or so, he would walk by my office, and he wouldn't even come in the office. He would just knock on the glass, and, and he would just look in at me, and he would say, did you SOAP? And, and him asking that to me every day or, or multiple days a week made me want to, to read the Bible and to journal more. Now, I know that as I say these things, some of you are thinking in your minds, I'm just not a reader. I'm just not a reader. To which I would say two things. Number one, I would say as graciously and as lovingly as possible, it is time to become a reader. It's time to become a reader. But not only that, I would say that you can do this. You can become a reader. I was, I was reading a book recently in preparation for this, and the author was telling a story about a man from Kansas City. And he said that years ago, like many years ago, decades ago, there was a man in Kansas City who was involved in a terrible explosion. And he had severe injuries from this explosion. He, he lost his eyesight, he was totally blind, and he lost both of his hands. And this man actually had become a Christian just a few weeks before the explosion. And so one of the things that he was devastated about was that he wasn't able to read the Bible anymore. And so this man, he heard about a woman in England who had learned to read Braille with her lips. And so he sent off for the Bible in Braille. And so he got the Braille, he was excited, and then he tried to read the Braille with his lips, and he realized that the nerve endings in his lips had been so severely damaged from the explosion that he couldn't even read it with his lips. But as he was trying to figure this out, he realized that he could, he could feel the characters of the Braille with his tongue. And so what ended up happening is th this man read through the Bible multiple times with his tongue. And the point of all this 
is that if this man can discipline himself to read the Bible with his tongue, then I am confident that you can become a reader. We need to be a church that is full of self-feeders. We need to be a church full of people who go to the word of God for a word from God. And so David says, number one, look up. Look up at God's creation. And then he says, two, look down. Look down at the scriptures. And now, point three, he's going to say, look inward at yourself. So look with me at verse 12. He says this. Who can discern his, which is King David's, errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So as King David looks up, he thinks, wow, this is amazing. And then he looks down at the scriptures and he thinks, this is also amazing. And then finally, in the last few verses, King David looks inward at himself and he says, "Uh uh-oh. Because King David realizes, I'm a sinner. I am guilty. I am in need of forgiveness. And this is exactly what the word of God does. The word of God can function as a CT scan or an MRI that can read your soul and show you where you are sick and where you are in need of help. When I was practicing as a PA in gastroenterology, I would see patients every day with abdominal pain. And where this often led was I ended up ordering a lot of CT scans of the abdomen and pelvis. And on one hand, the patients hated the scans. They hated it because they're expensive. You, they're uncomfortable. You've got to go lay on a table. A lot of times you have to get IV contrast. And so it's just not a very good experience. But on the other hand, the patients would love the scans. Because what would happen after I ordered the scan, they would get the scan, I would get the results, and then I would pick up the phone and I would call them. And I would say one of two things. I would say either, hey, good news. Everything looks good here. There's nothing worrisome to explain your pain. Or I would pick up the phone and I would say, hey, unfortunately, this scan shows some things that we were hoping it didn't show. But here are the next steps that we're going to take. Here is how we are going to treat this. In these situations, a CT scan functions as a gift because without it, you don't know if you're healthy or sick. And so on one hand, you can't celebrate health, but on the other hand, you can't, you can't get help if you are sick. And this is exactly what the word of God does. In the same way, reading your Bible regularly is a gift because it will point out to you the areas of your life that need to be addressed. To not read the Bible regularly is to risk letting sin in your life grow and grow and grow to the point where you are very sick. And so in the last few verses, what King David asks for is he asks for salvation from his faults and also for protection from himself. He's asking for pardon and he's asking for power. He's saying he knows that he is guilty. He is saying that he needs forgiveness from his hidden faults. So he's asking God to forgive him of the sins that he doesn't even know that he's committing. And this is another reason why you need to be in community. Because when you are in community, you will be around people who can see your life and point out to you the areas that need to be addressed. You may say, well, they they can point out your blind spots. And you might say, well, I don't think I have blind spots. They're called blind spots. (laughs) All of us have these blind spots. And being in community will help point these out to you. But then King David also prays for power. In verse 13, he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. So what he's doing is he's asking God, would you protect me 
from committing sins that I make with my eyes wide open? Would you protect me from myself, from committing sins that I know are wrong that will destroy me? And so he's praying for pardon and he's praying for power. When King David wrote Psalm 19, he knew very well that God revealed himself in his world and God revealed himself in his word. But about a thousand years after King David would die, God would reveal himself to us most perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. As the author of Hebrews puts it, in Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 2, he says this. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We are in the middle of the Christmas season. And the whole big idea of what we are celebrating here at Christmas is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are celebrating that Jesus Christ became flesh and and dwelt among us. The written word became the walking word. And in Psalm 19, there are multiple characteristics that David uses to describe the scriptures. And those characteristics perfectly describe Jesus Christ. I'll read them to you. Jesus Christ is perfect. He is sure. He is right. He is clean. And he is true. And what God did is that he humbled himself. He entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ because we could not make our way to him. We could not save ourselves. We could not be good enough. And so what Christ did is Christ came. And in the same way that God did not have to reveal himself to us in the scriptures, Jesus Christ did not have to come to save us. He could have just left us here in the mess. But out of love for you, out of love for me, he came down willfully and joyfully. R.G. Lee, who was a Baptist pastor in Tennessee in the early to mid-1900s, he wrote of Jesus Christ in this way. And this right here, this is what we celebrate at Christmas. He writes this. What deep descent the incarnation. From the heights of glory to the depths of shame. From the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty, no room for him who made all rooms, No place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of the creator. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is living and it is active. Your word is perfect, it is sure, it is, it is right, it is true. Your word is beneficial. And Father, as we get closer to 2022, I just pray that we would become a church that just feasts on your word. Father, we need help. Would you help us to be disciplined in coming to your word daily for a word from you? Father, I, I just thank you and praise you that you did not leave us in the mess, that you came down You lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we deserved in order for us to be reconciled to you. 
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.